Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Thank you for the reviews you're giving us where you're listening to the podcast. Really appreciate it. If anybody hasn't written a review or rated the podcast, I encourage you to do that. I think it connects more people to the podcast. Grateful for you listeners that are listening and sharing it. We believe about eight to 9,000 are listening to every episode. And that's a credit to you, our listeners, and especially our guests that are some of my heroes that come on and bravely share their stories. And that's really what makes the podcast work. And we have one of those, what I would call a hero here in my home on a Saturday afternoon, a hot July day, um, my friend Michelle Kehoe. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you. You've got the coolest spelling of your first name and a cool <laughs> last name. Will you just spell both names for our listeners? Sure. Um, it's M-I-S-H-E-L-L-E, and then Kehoe is spelled K-E-H-O-E. And um, I'll give a little bit of bio for our listeners on what we're, what we're going to talk about. Um, first, I'll just introduce Michelle. She is in her last semester at BYU. Um, she's a, preparing for a career teaching language as a second language. And she will be going to grad school, and then she would like to teach adults in the United States. And that's a deep impression that came to her while at BYU. Really cool career path that's going to help a lot of people. But we won't talk too much about that on the podcast. Um, she grew up in Las Vegas. She's active LDS. She served a mission to New Zealand, someplace I'd love to go. She got home in 2019. But we'll really start with her decision to serve a mission kind of concurrent with being a victim or a survivor of a sexual assault that occurred in 2016. And that really changed the direction of her life. She'll talk about wanting to go on a mission and working with a state president that felt like that wasn't the right time to go. And really her path, which is a little bit ongoing, but mostly done, you'll have to tell us, Michelle, to find healing. And so if you are what I call a survivor of a sexual assault, um, Michelle will have insights that will help you have hope. Michelle also has an eating disorder, um, a binge eating disorder, and that is not tied to being a survivor of a sexual assault. That's something else that's come into her life that is a big deal. And um, I have learned that I've underestimated how much of a big deal that is in the lives of people that are walking that road. And it's really hard for those of us that don't have an eating disorder to help to feel to help those people feel understood. So we will talk about that part of her journey and her road to healing and sort of navigating that a lot of that during her mission in New Zealand. Um, but there's a lot of growth and stretching and pain and setbacks in both of these journeys. And so our hope, we offer a prayer that those of you that um, are a victim of a sexual assault or working on solving an eating disorder, that Michelle, who bravely has come on the podcast and hearing her vulnerable, courageous story will help you um, because she's walking this road. Before we went live, I asked Michelle how she found the podcast. And like many of our listeners, they're listening to the podcast, and then they get a prompting, maybe I should tell my story. And I do have people that just find me, that DM me, um, even if we're not connected in social media, and I check my DMs, and that's how we became connected. And a lot of the guests on the podcast start me reaching out, someone just saying, you know, maybe I should share my story. Maybe this is the right time for me to do that, the right platform. 
And I'm just honored to bring stories. Um, so we just kind of schedule those and find the time. And if you feel as a listener that your story is something that you would like to share, I'm glad to process that. But I recognize that many of our listeners don't feel their story is something they need to share or should share. Um, and I've learned to honor that. In fact, I had a conversation of getting tangent more than usual here with um, a gentleman who recognizes there's probably a lot of LGBTQ people, and this podcast is not LGBTQ-focused today, that just don't feel a need to share that part of their journey. And he, and so there's no podcast, obviously, with people on the podcast talking about why they're not talking about that part of their life. And if you're one of those people, don't feel you're not being authentic or real or courageous by publicly sharing your story. It may not be um, something you need to do, and it may not be your path. So don't listen to all these other stories and think, well, I'm not real or vulnerable or courageous because I'm not sharing my story. It may be exactly God doesn't want you or need you to share your story broadly, but just hearing other stories helps you to be able to move forward. So anything you want to correct that I said so far, Michelle? that okay? Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you. So um, let's start with, um, did you always want to go on a mission or did this come later? I wanted to serve a mission ever since I was a kid. Um, I remember every night for family prayer, we'd all kneel together. And when my dad would offer the prayer, he'd always bless that my three brothers would grow up to serve missions. And one night after the prayer, I sat there thinking, well, what if I want to serve a mission? Like, why aren't you blessing me to be able to serve a mission? Um, and, I, and I told him that. I was like, Dad, I'm going to serve a mission one day. Why, don't, why aren't you blessing me? And from that day forward, um, his prayers always turned into, you know, please bless the boys to grow up and serve missions and any of the girls that want to, that they serve missions as well. And good, so, Good job, Dad. That's awesome. <laughs> he's a good dad. He's a great dad. Um, and so as I got closer to being 19, I started seriously considering serving a mission. Um, and I began praying, um, probably about six months before I turned 19. I think you can submit your papers maybe four months before you turn 19. And so as I began praying and seeking the answer, um, with some time and with quite a bit of scripture study, I felt like... Um, God had said that if I want to serve a mission, that I could serve a mission. And I was ecstatic. I was so excited to be able to serve. Um, and so I started the long process of mission papers. Um, I did the wisdom teeth removal. I did all the physicals. I met with my bishop many a times. Um, I was switching wards and branches at that time so it was hard um, to do my papers quickly because they'd have to send them from one bishop to another um, and so after many months of, of trying to get these submitted it was finally the day that I'd meet with my state president and if you aren't familiar with um, the, the mission paper process meeting with your state president is the last step before you submit your papers um, so all of my friends and family knew that I was going to serve a mission soon. Um, I'd probably be getting a mission call within the next few weeks. Um, and I go into this meeting with my state president, and he's reviewing my application, asking me questions as 
um, state presidents do. And um, he gets to a point in my application where I had mentioned that I had recently been sexually assaulted. And he um, kind of starts asking me about that. Um, he asked me more about that than any of my bishops had. And that kind of made me stop to think, like, wait, wait, wait. You know, why is this an issue? If this was an issue, why didn't any of my bishops bring this up? Why has nobody talked to me about this before? But as we sat there and talked, and as I sat crying in his office, because even talking about the sexual assault was triggering and traumatic for me, um, he sat there and he just looked at me and he said, you know, Sister Kehoe, now might not be the best time to serve the mission. I want you to be able to serve when you are mentally and emotionally um, at the best place in your life so that you can serve to the best of your abilities. And you're just not there right now. He told me that I would need clearance from a therapist in order to serve a mission. And this was devastating. Um, it was heartbreaking to, to be told that I couldn't serve a mission not because of anything that I had done, but because of somebody else's poor choice um, that had affected me and changed my life. Um, I remember walking out of his office and feeling so angry, not with him, but with God. Um, I couldn't believe that a loving God would let something like that happen to me. And I couldn't believe that a loving God would tell me to go on a mission just for me to not be able to actually go on a mission. But I decided that if I was going to serve a mission, I was going to have to start healing. And um, I knew that healing process wasn't going to be easy, but I was determined. And so the very next day, I remember going to BYU's counseling services and finding a therapist. Um, within a few weeks, I ended up joining a group therapy as well. So I was in close to three hours of therapy every week. And I had this idea in my head that therapy was going to be easy. And it absolutely was not. <laughs> therapy was like, um, I mean, I remember having to schedule. It wasn't just two hours of group therapy. It was five hours of group therapy, two hours of the actual session, and then three hours of going home and crying in my bed because I was in so much pain. As I began going to therapy and group therapy, I realized that full healing was only going to come um, if I began to incorporate Jesus Christ into that process. In addition to Jesus Christ, I also needed the support of family and friends. And I'd kind of like to talk about um, each of those three things. I kind of think of them as a trifecta. Like you need therapy, you need Jesus Christ, and you need your family and friends. And I'll start by talking about therapy. Um, to any listeners who may have been sexually assaulted or have experienced some other traumatic event in your life, 
um, therapy is going to be a game changer for you. I went through a couple of therapists before finding one that worked for me. Um, and group therapy was hard. If you've never been to group therapy, it's an interesting experience. Um, for me, I found that it was difficult because I was comparing my story to others. And I felt like I didn't have a right to feel the way that I was feeling. I felt like what had happened to me was so minor in comparison to what had happened to them. And I didn't understand how I could be in as much pain as they were, despite the varying degrees of sexual assault. That took me um, a long time to come to terms with, and it's something that I'm still trying to come to terms with. But what I loved about group therapy is that for the first time, I knew that I wasn't alone, that there were other people who were experiencing um, PTSD as a result of a sexual assault and people who knew what I was going through and empathized with me. In addition to therapy, um, one thing that was really important was the support of family and friends. Not very many people um, know about this story. Um, for a long time, I haven't felt comfortable talking about it and sharing it. And particularly during my time and period of healing, um, there were a very small number of people who were aware of what I was going through. I remember one day I was on the phone with my sister and I was kind of telling her how I was doing and she asked if I had talked to my mom. And I told her that I hadn't and she asked why. And I said, I don't want to be a burden to mom. I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I don't want anybody to have to share this pain. And what my sister said after that has stuck with me for years. She told me that God gives people trials at different times so that those who are weak can be supported by those who are strong and who are not currently going through trials. And that advice changed my mentality. I realized how important it was to reach out and to feel the love of others. Um, I began to be more open with my mom and with a few other individuals about what I was experiencing. And the support that I gained from them was a game changer for me. I needed their love and I needed their support. Please reach out to trusted individuals. Um, you don't have to shout it from the rooftops, but tell those who, who love you and who will support you and believe you because their love and influence is going to help heal you. Um, and lastly, and, and probably one of the most pivotal um, things that helped me to heal was our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, I'll be the first to admit that I, to this day, do not completely understand the atonement of Jesus Christ but I can testify 
that it was because of our Savior and because of what he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane that there is somebody who understood what I was going through. And that somehow, in some way that I don't fully understand, I was healed through the atonement of Jesus Christ. I remember one night I was praying to God. Um, It was one of those days where the emotional pain turned physical, where the pain, you can feel it in your stomach. It was like, it was like I had been hit by a car, but really I was just so emotionally trodden down that I was feeling its effects physically. And I was on my knees praying to God, and I was telling him, I do not wish this pain upon anybody. It hurts so bad, and I didn't understand why anybody would have to go through it. And it was in that moment that God told me, Jesus Christ has already experienced what you felt and what you're feeling. And I just felt so much love, and I felt understood. And honestly, I felt a little bit of pain knowing that Christ had felt what I had felt, because it's a horrible, horrible pain. And so for any of you who have felt that or who experienced that today, know that Christ is walking with you, and he can support you and heal you. I have a firm, firm testimony of that. Healing from sexual assault is not easy, and it takes time. For me, I kind of jumped on the fast track um, because I was so determined to go on my mission. And while I was able to get clearance from my therapist in about six months, um, some people spend years and even a lifetime healing from sexual assault. And that's okay. Everybody's journey is different. But know that you are not alone and that there is hope and there is healing. Um, And like I said, therapy, family and friends, and Jesus Christ, um, those are what helped me. And, and And I've seen it in others that it really can help to heal you. That's a great segment, Michelle. Um, I love the simplicity and the power of the trifecta. I I can see a triangle in my mind permanently. I was listening to a podcast, I think it was from Steve Young, our NFL quarterback, and he talked about um, this phrase in our church where we work out our own salvation, which is true. But he wondered... And I think it was Steve Young. He's, he wondered if that creates something that it's imbalanced in our culture where we're supposed to solve our own problems ourselves. And so we create a culture, a mindset, or an expectation that I'll just solve everything. But as you, you've talked about, your path to healing involved a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was hard and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It involved... Um, having the courage to bring family members and friends into your circle. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you lo- read out really good logic why you didn't want to do that and then bringing Christ to heal. But I love 
that you brought all three of those in to, as the path to healing. Even though you recognize you did nothing wrong here, you also, I've never heard anybody articulate as well, when you went to therapy and you heard different experiences, some that were worse, quote-unquote, than yours, you felt some level of guilt that I'm feeling the same level of pain as them, but mm -hmm. my sexual assault wasn't as bad, I guess, is what you're inferring. And I, I love that um, your level of, I think our level of pain doesn't need to be compared to other people's experiences because it's all about honoring people's pain versus having to then prove their pain to you. So if I was your therapist and was a bad therapist, and I would I could say, well, your sexual assault experience on a one to ten is about a seven. Let me tell you about some tens, um, and that's so you shouldn't feel bad because let me tell you a bunch of worse stories than your story, and it sort of invalidates your story and minimizes your story, and then creates more shame for you, which we're going to talk about around how you're feeling. And I think a good therapist would just sort of validate and honor how you're feeling because it's the way you feel. What? Why wouldn't we just, you know, honor how someone feels versus doing anything? You didn't say other people didn't validate that, but it was just a self sort of... So I think that was really helpful for people that may wonder, my experience isn't as bad as so-and-so, so I shouldn't feel pain. I shouldn't... This shouldn't be bothering me so much. Um... One of the things we want to talk about is um, a lot of people don't share their experience broadly with family and friends. And so a lot of people that are dear to and close to you may be hearing more of your story right now than they've ever heard before. Mm -hmm. And I know when I've done podcasts in the past, some of my guests are a little nervous. They're thinking there's people really close to me. They're going to hear this podcast and may think, why didn't they tell me earlier? And I think one of the things I've learned, and you could obviously share, is that it's hard to tell that whole story like you're telling now on an hour podcast to everybody. So in some ways, a podcast is a really good platform because the people that are close to you, that you care about, you're doing this as a way for them not to make them feel like they weren't involved, but as a way to bring them into your story and to sort of get as up to speed on your story so they kind of meet you where you are now and not go through the emotional sort of experience of having to retell that story to people that are close to you. And so any thoughts for people that are hearing your story right now that may think, why well, I'm a close friend to Michelle, why didn't she tell me this earlier? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, I think you said it well, that it's hard to be this open and this vulnerable over and over again. Um, for a long time, I haven't felt comfortable sharing this about my life. But I'm finally at a place where I can. Um, and that feels empowering. It feels good to know um, that I've come so far and that I'm at a place where I can talk about what I've been through and how I'm stronger because of it. Um, but to any friends or family who may be listening to this and um, may not have known about these aspects of my life, um, just know that there's no right or wrong way to respond. Whether you want to reach out and ask me questions or just let me know that you've listened to my podcast, um, that's wonderful. And if you don't or you may feel uncomfortable or not really know what to say, that's okay too. Um, just know that if you'd like to talk, um, I'm here. 
and um, thank you for listening to my journey. That's great. Uh, talk about that state president. Um, that's an interesting situation you're in because usually experiences of priesthood leaders are really healing and helpful. Did he do the right thing there? And are you glad he did that, even though it felt like a major setback for him? In retrospect, um, that was that state president was so inspired. He was inspired to ask some questions that no other priesthood leader had asked me up until that point. And I'm so grateful that he did. I'm grateful that he didn't permit me to go on a mission at that time. Um, that kind of leads me to what happened after I finally healed. Um, it had been probably close to eight months since I had received initial revelation saying that I could serve a mission if I wanted to. And so I felt like maybe it was a good idea that I pray about it again, um, just in case something had changed in the time that I was healing. And as I prayed, um, much to my dismay, God told me that it was no longer the right time to serve a mission. And that whole being angry with God cycle started over. It happened once when I was rejected in my meeting with my state president, and it happened again after everything that I'd been through in those six months of healing. Why am I still not allowed to serve a mission? I'm trying to do a good thing. I'm trying to serve the Lord. I had righteous intentions, and God told me no. And I really struggled with that. Um, I didn't understand why I had received initial revelation saying that I could serve a mission only to not be able to go. And then once I've healed to be told you still can't go. And I didn't understand. And so for months I continued to ask God, Hey, how about now? Can I serve now? And it was no, no, no. And after months of being told no by God, um, I, I gave up. It was disappointing being told no over and over again. And I really struggled. I, I really didn't understand why I couldn't serve. And eventually, um, I accepted that maybe I wouldn't serve a mission at this point in my life. And maybe I would never serve a mission. And that took a long time to come to terms with. Um, but I looked back and I realized that the only thing that would have motivated me to get healing was being told that I could not serve a mission until I healed from my sexual assault. My mom had been telling me for months that I should probably see a therapist and that I probably wasn't okay. But I thought I was fine. I didn't realize just how traumatic that event had been for me. But being told that I couldn't serve a mission until I healed was what got me into a therapist's office. That is what got me on my knees, and that is what caused me to reach out and ask for help from family and friends. And so I became grateful for my state president who told me no. I became grateful for the experience that I had 
despite how difficult it was for me. Because it was because of my sexual assault that I gained a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ. A lot of people wonder why good bad why bad things happen to good people. And some people aren't satisfied with the answer that it's for us to learn and for us to grow. But having been in a position where a bad thing that was completely out of my control happened to me and experiencing the suffering of that and seeing the other side of healing and of hope, I'm grateful that I went through everything that I went through because I'm stronger for it. I'd accepted that I might not serve a mission and I'd accepted that um, maybe I had originally been told to serve just so that I would end up getting the help that I needed to heal. And time went on. Um, I was finishing my third year at Brigham Young University, um, almost ready to graduate and continue on with my life. And I was sitting in sacrament meeting one day, and God said to me, now is the time to serve a mission. And I remember sitting there, and my eyes just got so big. I was like, wait, are you serious? <laughs> it was one of those promptings that was so clear that you couldn't even ask God, did I hear that correctly? Because it would be like mocking him. I mean, it was just so distinct, and I knew what I had to do. Um, that very day, I met with my, my bishop at the time, and I restarted my mission papers. Because it had been so long, I had to start completely over, which was an interesting experience. Um, but I submitted my papers within two weeks of reopening them and received a call about a month later um, to the New Zealand Auckland Mission. I love where you serve, by the way. Um, I assume sort of being a third-year student at BYU that you're sitting in class with lots of return missionaries and you sort of have a feeling that people my age have sort of done that and we're kind of in upper division classes and now I'm thinking of doing something that I've kind of wanted to do a long time ago. That's a really interesting situation to be in. That door's kind of closed, you're moving on with your life and then God says now's the time. How long did it take from that experience? It didn't sound like a very long long time because you went immediately to your bishop. Was the meeting with your bishop saying, I'm going, or was it just sort of like, let's talk about the process if I decide to do this? Um, it was, I'm going on a mission. <laughs> let's, let's go. Let's restart the process. Um, but you actually brought up a really good point. One thing that was really hard for me in those two years between starting my mission papers for the first time and receiving my mission call two years later was that people would ask me over and over and over again, why haven't you served a mission? When are you going to serve a mission? Have you ever thought about serving a mission? And it was the most painful experience, the most painful reminder that for some reason I couldn't serve. And for at least the first half, of that time, I didn't know how to tell people. Because they knew you were going. The first right. they you, I assume, had told people, my papers mm -hmm. are in, I'm meeting with my state president. I hope to get a call in a month. 
Mm-hmm. So there's this circle of people, and then suddenly, and you don't want to tell them. They, so that creates, I would assume, a lot of shame and just awkward conversations. Yes. I didn't know how to tell people why I wasn't serving a mission and why I didn't know at what point I would serve a mission. It's really hard. I didn't know if healing was going to take three months or three years. There was just no telling. Um, and then it became discouraging even after I was healed to have people tell me, you'd be a really great missionary. You should serve a mission. This was coming from close family and friends. And it just kind of struck a chord because I wanted to serve a mission more than anything. And I couldn't. And so I would just kind of shrug it off and laugh and say, yeah, you know, maybe one day I will. But it, it was it was hard. If I were a ward member, a friend, knowing you'd submitted your papers, and what would be, what should I ask you or not ask you? Help me to navigate that potentially. I think the most important thing is to reserve judgment. I think people make well-meaning remarks or ask well-meaning questions, but when they're met with, in their eyes, an unsatisfactory answer of, I don't know when I'm going to serve, or I don't plan on serving, or I don't feel like now is the right time, um, I often felt judged for that decision, and that was hard. So I think the biggest advice that I would give people who maybe wondering why certain people aren't serving a mission or um, why originally they were, but they're no longer going to. It's just to, to reach out with, with love and without judgment. Um, it's hard to say, never ask people. Don't ask them questions. Just don't ask why. Um, because it's different with every individual. But just be prepared that when you hear their answer, you're ready to love and support them where they're at on their journey. No matter how much or how little you know about it, um, you don't know what they're going through. And so try to withhold judgment. That's very helpful, Michelle. And I, I wish I had heard more of these stories a long time ago because I just recognize sometimes I add to people's burdens um, with the questions that I ask. And so I like your answer there especially to withhold judgment. I think sometimes we want to find a backstory to explain some to explain what hasn't what's not occurring here. And so we we want to find out and I think maybe that's to satisfy I think then we have to ask who am I trying to help here me because I'm just trying to satisfy my own curiosity or I'm actually my goal here to help Michelle and to help lift her burden and so maybe if I'm a trusted friend asking open-ended questions like, would you like to talk about how you're feeling about a mission um, versus a prescriptive sort of leading question, I can see you're not going on a mission, right? Um, so it's just sort of more of an open-ended, do you want to talk about what's going on with your mission versus anything that's sort of a leading question? And I love your point about whatever the answer is that we shouldn't feel ju- you shouldn't feel judged with the how I respond, we just give you the benefit of the doubt and recognize there's information that we're not aware of here that if we were, we'd 
and we're not supposed to be aware of it, it, it would give us more of a context, and we just leave it at that. Any more thoughts on that? Talk oh, about, I think that's wonderful. Talk about anger, because we... I remember in my YSA assignment for the first time in my life listening to YSAs that are angry at God. And I never had any training on how to deal with that. Um, I think it kind of shocked me at first. And I think I first wanted to tell them they shouldn't be angry at God. And that was sort of breaking the commandments and they need to get with the program. But over a while, I just recognized that's a pretty logical thing um, to be angry at God. And I actually think God can handle it. I think eventually agency kicks in and we need to um, solve that anger. Just talk about, this is, if you, now you're several years away from that experience, what advice would you give to yourself when you're angry at God? And that's like you talking to our listeners that are angry at God right now. I think what you said is really important, that it's okay to be angry at God. He can handle it. Initially, when I started healing, it was out of spite. I was like, you know what? Fine. If I have to heal before I go on a mission, I'll heal. Let's go. Let's do this. But that spite quickly, quickly turned into humility when I realized that I am nothing without God. I will not heal without God. I will not heal completely. There is still healing that will come um, through various means of of support and of therapy but I realized that ultimately it would be God who would complete that healing love that we've done a podcast um, talking about heavenly parents and heavenly mother and um, as our listeners know we don't pray directly to heavenly mother but we can pray to heavenly father for heavenly mother to help us and um, in that podcast, we talked about women that are survivors of sexual assault at the hands of men. And sometimes in those situations, it's really hard to trust men, including God. And Heavenly Mother perhaps has an increased role to help her daughters heal. And there's sometimes more trust to Heavenly Mother than Heavenly Father, <laughs> just because of the dynamics of the trauma. So... That's just a thought for you listeners that was very insightful for me that a prayer, um, it's our podcast about Heavenly Mother that um, three women shared a while ago. Um, Talk about, introduce your eating disorder to us. And uh, my assumption before we went live was that was connected to the sexual assault. And that's my therapist 101 coming through, which is... (laughs) bad because I'm not a therapist, that you help me understand that's different, um, which is helpful for me. Um, talk about your eating disorder and and how difficult that experience is and how you're overcoming that. I, think, I don't know if you want to tie that into then getting your mission call on, because yeah. these are kind of concurrent. Yeah, I think you're right that for a lot of people, um, eating disorders are associated with sexual assault or other traumatic events. That's not abnormal. Um, For me, they're independent events, um, as far as I can tell. Um, But after I received my mission call, I was 
excited. Actually, at this point, I was quite terrified to serve a mission. Um, a lot of people are excited and at their spiritual peak before they serve, but I was scared out of my mind. I I was so excited two years earlier to serve, but at this point, I didn't want to go anymore. Um, I decided to go because I love God, but those months leading up to my mission were full of sleepless nights and anxiety and depression, and I did not want to go. Um, Kind of what added to all of this was being diagnosed with an eating disorder a month before I left. It's kind of remarkable how this all happened. Um, I was dating somebody at the time, and we knew that I was going on a mission, and practically speaking, it made sense to break up. But we had prayed about it one night, and for some reason, we felt like we should stay together. We were okay with that. Um, We liked each other, obviously. And so we continued to date despite my, my mission departure date coming very closely. And in that additional month that we decided to date, um, probably in, in actually the last few days that we were dating, one night we were sitting in his living room and he was looking through stuff on his phone and he just looks up at me and he says, Michelle, I think you have an eating disorder. And I remember everything inside me just broke in that moment. In a weird way, it was simultaneously one of the most painful experiences and the most relieving experiences I've ever had. In that moment, um, something that I had been carrying alone for eight years came into the light. That was the first time anybody had ever vocalized the idea that I had an eating disorder. I had known for so long, but it's not something that I ever wanted to acknowledge. And having it acknowledged hurt. It made it more real. It made me realize this is a problem that I haven't been addressing for years and years and years. It also terrified me because I was supposed to be leaving on a mission in a month. And how am I going to serve a mission with this coming to light? I just, I didn't know what to do. Do I tell my state president? Do I tell my mission president? Do I tell my home state president? Do I tell my bishop? Do I tell my parents? Do I go to therapy? Do I not serve a mission? I mean, these are all questions that came flooding into my mind. And I remember I just ended up sitting on his floor crying because I realized that I might not be able to serve a mission again. After everything that I had been through, this could potentially prevent me from serving a mission again. And I couldn't deal with the thought of that. I um, ended up seeing a therapist a couple days later um, and was officially, I was officially diagnosed with binge eating disorder. As I said, um, this is something that I had struggled with for a long time. I struggled with pretty severe body dysmorphia um, and also binging. 
And um, we define body dys dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. I think the best way to describe it is that you're constantly you don't see your body as it really is, and you're constantly comparing it to other people. Um, you a stereotypical example is you are very thin and very fit, and yet you look in the mirror and all you see is, is a, an overweight person. What you see and what you believe about yourself is not congruent with who you really are and what you really look like. And, and I struggled with that severely. The person I saw in the mirror is not who I was in real life, and it messes with your brain because you constantly think that you're someone you're not, um, but in a bad way, <laughs> in a way that um, you're unaccepting of who you are despite your, your beauty. Great definition. I think a lot, probably more people um, experience that than we realize. Mm -hmm. um, I remember asking my therapist, so do I go on a mission or do I not? And she just kind of looked at me and she said, that's for you to decide. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. I'm not qualified to make this kind of decision. I just want to be told what to do. And that's not just a question that I asked my therapist, but I also asked God. I was like, God, do I go on a mission or do I not? I asked my parents, do I go on a mission or do I not? And nobody was giving me an answer. And I was terrified because what's going to happen if I go on my mission with this eating disorder? Is it going to get worse? Will I get sent home? I just didn't know. And the unknowns worried me. I remember after meeting with my therapist, I called my parents crying, told them I've been diagnosed with an eating disorder. And my mom um, was understanding and very loving. I remember my dad's reaction. He just didn't get it. And there are people who just don't understand eating disorders. My dad didn't understand the psychological ramifications of an eating disorder. He just thought I ate a lot of food. So what if I eat six bowls of cereal in a row? He says, you know, he's like, I do that every night at two in the morning. Does that mean I have a binge eating disorder? And hearing things like that was really hard for me because I didn't feel understood or validated. Um, it's hard for people who aren't very familiar with eating disorders, it's easy to look at somebody who's a quote-unquote regular size and to think, well, they're not overweight. How could they have an eating disorder? Or they're not underweight. They must not have an eating disorder. But what they don't realize is that it's just as much of a psychological or mental catastrophe as it is a food game. Every day I would wake up and it would be a battle of, I don't love my body. 
how much do I need to starve myself today in order to have a body that I can love and that can be accepted by the world? Okay, I've starved myself for too long. I need to eat way too much food, way more than I need. I, I was... I was going through these cycles where I would binge and restrict, binge and restrict. And if you're if you're familiar with binge eating disorders, you've experienced this yourself, or you've seen someone you love go through this this process of trying a million different diets and never being satisfied with the result. I can guarantee that no matter how small or how fit I got, I would never be happy. And these struggles of what I'm allowed to eat, how much I'm allowed to eat, when I'm allowed to eat, that's a bad food, that's a good food, I can't eat carbs, I can't eat fats, whatever it may be, it was constant dialogue in my head. And it completely blocked out any sort of rational, normal thinking about food which our body needs. Our bodies biologically need food and it's not meant to be a battle. With a lot of, eventually, I ended up deciding to serve my mission despite my eating disorder. I saw a lot of therapists in that month and a dietitian in that month to try to figure out how to overcome this eating disorder, but let me tell you, <laughs> you can't overcome an eating disorder in one month. Um, no matter how hard you try, these mindsets and these habits were ingrained in me for years and years, and it was not something that I could overcome in a month. I actually left on my mission believing that I wouldn't last more than three months. I anticipated coming home three months after I left on my mission as a result of my eating disorder. But I trusted that, you know what, if that happens, that's all that God expected of me. All he expects of me is that I try my best. And if I go and come home in three months, that's okay. I remember one of my therapists gave me some intuitive eating books to take on my mission, and she told me to read it every day, and I felt so apostate bring me anything other than scriptures on my mission. I was like, this is not okay. This is illegal. I'm going to get in trouble. I can't have these in my bag. Um, I had all these thoughts swimming in my head. Interestingly, I didn't end up reading them on my mission. Um, but I think our mental health is just as important as our spiritual health. And I can tell you that when my mental health was... Um, at its worst on my mission, spiritually, I couldn't perform. And so, well, for me, I didn't end up reading those books. Um, for some people, reading books about intuitive eating or about depression or anxiety on their mission or taking the time to work with a psychologist on your mission or like your mission therapist talking to your mission president and being open about the struggles that you're having with your mental health, that is just as pivotal as reading your scriptures. You cannot be an effective missionary unless your mental health is up to par. 
And so be open with your mission president. I don't suggest sneaking, quote unquote, illegal books into your mission. Um, but talk to your mission president. Let them know where you're at. And I just pray you have a mission president who is understanding of mental struggles and will get you or allow you the help to get the help that you need in order to be mentally stable. That's a really good segment. I, I've learned this and I share it with our listeners and you communicate this really well, Michelle, is that an eating disorder is not a spiritual deficit. And so it doesn't get solved with spiritual tools. <laughs> um, we need Jesus and we need a therapist. And that's one of the key fundamental things you're helping us understand in this podcast. And if I'm a priesthood leader that doesn't quite have that experience, and I did it at some point in my life, I recognize that sometimes I can add to someone's burden by suggesting that to solve this, you should just be more spiritual, read more, or get up earlier and be over-obedient to solve this, but that would just add to your burden. And so that's why I'm really grateful you're telling your story. Talk about just how you solve this or, or are living with it, whatever vocabulary you're using. One of the one of the things that I loved about my mission is that I overcame my eating disorder while I was a missionary. Much to my surprise, I did not go home after three months. I didn't go home after six months or even a year. Um, I ended up serving the full 18 months, despite the various challenges that I had with depression and with my eating disorder. But that wasn't without difficulty. Before overcoming my eating disorder, um, I gained 50 pounds in the first four months of my mission. I had weighed more than I ever had in my life. And for anyone who has had an eating disorder, you know how hard that is. I remember looking in the mirror and just, I couldn't even recognize myself. I didn't know who was staring back at me. But one thing that I reminded myself of every single day is that People have to make sacrifices in order to serve the mission. People sacrifice scholarships. They sacrifice friends. They sacrifice education, job opportunities, family. And for me, one of the things that I had to sacrifice was my body. This mentality won't work for everybody, but I realized that I was sacrificing my body in order to serve the Lord and that well, my body is now covered with stretch marks that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. I love God, and I am willing to make the sacrifices necessary in order to serve Him. And so on the days where none of my clothes fit, where I had to donate almost everything that I brought with me on my mission because not a single article of clothing fit me anymore, I constantly reminded myself that this is one of the many things that I'm sacrificing to serve God and that I can deal with my eating disorder when I get home. Focus on the Lord for now um, and worry about it when I get home. 
I'd like to add quickly that I don't believe that serving a mission with an eating disorder is right for everybody. I believe it's important to ask God and to make a decision with trusted um, therapists um, and trusted adults, whether it be your parents or um, adults who you're close to. Make this decision with them because um, while I was able to serve my mission despite my eating disorder, not everybody can. I believe for some people, their eating disorder gets worse on their mission. For some people, they might serve their whole mission and deal with it once they get home. It's different for every individual. Um, for me, um, as we talked about earlier, I, I actually ended up overcoming my eating disorder on my mission. The way that I'll describe that happened, um, again, is, is unique to me. It might work for you, but if you're struggling with an eating disorder or with body dysmorphia, please see a therapist. Let them help you create a plan to overcome this. For me, what um, helped me overcome my eating disorder was is something called intermittent fasting. And what intermittent fasting is, is you eat for certain hours during the day, and then you only drink water for other hours in the day. There are some people who would say that this is another form of dieting or another form of of disordered eating, and I understand that. But for me, what this taught me was to give myself full permission to eat whatever I wanted. One of the things that I experienced as a binge eater and going through these binge and restrict cycles is that I would restrict foods that my body was craving, whether it was chocolate or bread or cereal I wouldn't allow myself to have what my body knew it wanted. And with intermittent fasting, I learned to give myself complete permission to listen to my body and honor my body cues. My body knows when it wants a piece of chocolate. It knows when it needs more carbs or when it needs more protein. It knows when it wants something sweet. It knows when it wants something salty. But for so long, I had been repressing those cues. And so for months, I, quote unquote, trained my body to listen to hunger cues and to listen to its cravings. Um, I would like to say that for some people, intermittent fasting actually causes them to binge. So again, please don't do it unless you've talked to a professional beforehand. But um, with intermittent fasting, I began to be more aware of my body. Um, my body naturally started dropping down to its natural weight, which natural weight is such an important thing to honor in your bodies. Everybody is beautiful despite their size. People have different natural weights. My natural body weight may be completely different from the girl sitting next to me in my English class 
or the guy working out across from me at the gym. But everybody has a natural, I believe everybody has a natural body weight. And overcoming an eating disorder, part of that process is learning to love yourself at your natural body weight. For so long, I had been unhappy with my natural size. And I kept trying to be smaller and smaller and smaller. But the fact of the matter is that my natural body weight is my natural body weight. And I need to honor and love that, to love who I see in the mirror. And so with learning to eat intuitively through intermittent fasting, um, I began to lose weight on my mission. I began to get closer to my natural body weight because I began to learn when my body was hungry, when it was full, um, when it needed more of certain types of foods and less of others. And as I continued to do that for months and months on my mission, I got to the point where I didn't have to intermittent fast anymore in order to honor my hunger cues and to listen to my body and to listen to what it wanted. I'd like to reiterate, though, that what helped me to overcome my eating disorder will not necessarily help everyone. Um, but the reason I share this, the reason I talk about my eating disorder at all, is because <clears throat> when I was diagnosed with an eating disorder, I would have given anything to have heard about somebody's experience with an eating disorder on their mission. But there's not a lot out there. Um, if you've been looking, this might be one of the first experiences that you've heard about or read. But I promise you that there is hope that you can overcome an eating disorder, um, that serving a mission might not be right for everybody with an eating disorder. For me, it ended up being okay, but everybody's journey is different. Ultimately, though, there is hope and there is healing. At this point, um, I <clears throat> haven't relapsed. It's been about a year and a half since I started that process of healing, and not relapsing has been a huge success for me. I've learned to accept my natural body weight and to love who I see in the mirror. I've stopped criticizing every flaw on my body and I've learned to love myself and it's still a process. There are still days where I feel less confident than others and where my self-esteem might be lower than previous days. But ultimately, the road, while the road to recovery has been long and it's been hard, um, it's been successful. And, and I know that um, anyone struggling with body dysmorphia or eating disorders of any kind can find that and experience that as well. That was a great segment, Michelle. We've never talked about that after 290 episodes. <laughs> and there are some people that are going to rewind that and want to hear that again. I learned a lot listening to you 
I love the word natural Bollywood. I have heard, maybe that's from the weight scales, that I've heard ideal body weight my whole life, and I am sort of know generally what my ideal body weight is. I think it's a medical sort of term based on my heart and my bone structure, but I love the term natural. To me, that ties it in more with this is what our heavenly parents want us to be. This is how they created us, not the societal expectation of ideal. So I love that word natural. And I love everything you talked about, how you've learned to love yourself and and just love this body that you've been given by heavenly parents. I think when we learn to love ourselves, we do better at loving others, and we believe we're lovable from heavenly parents. Sometimes I think if we can learn. You've always had a good connection with God, so you've always had that. But I think some people, because they can't love themselves for different reasons, it's hard to believe God would love them, so it's hard for them to get personal revelation. But I think God wants us to love ourselves. He wants us to be kind to ourselves. He wants us not to over be critical and over self-correct and look in the mirror. And that doesn't mean we want to make progress and move forward, but I think we've got to love ourselves the way we are and just accept that. So there were the other thing that I've never thought of was the role of an eating disorder in your mind. Um, so I, I kind of like your example with your father because I would be the same way. I would just say, well, I eat like you. Mm-hmm. I have six bowls of cereal. You don't have an eating disorder. But the difference with me is I'm just eating those six bowls of cereal and not thinking about food again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not cognitively sort of taking all this time in my brain mm-hmm. and cycling me down or keeping me from doing other things. And so that part of the eating disorder equation I've never thought about, but I recognize probably people with an eating disorder, a great deal of mental energy has been spent, is being yes. spent on when to eat, when not to eat. Mm-hmm. And that's exhausting. And, they, and you felt being lifted from that probably. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting too, because eating disorders foster a lot of shame and secrecy. Um, it almost... Some people call it a food addiction, depending on the type of eating disorder that you have. But, I mean, I would wait until my roommates went to bed, and then I'd binge, right? I couldn't let anybody know that I was about to eat an entire loaf of bread and toast, or that I was about to eat an entire bag of cereal. Um, There are still foods that I can't eat to this day because it reminds me of my, my, my binging foods. Um, but exactly what you said, it's constantly thinking, how much can I eat? When can I eat? What's the next type of food I'm going to eat? When am I, when am I going to binge again? What am I going to do after I binge? Is this the last time I'm going to binge? It's, it's constant battle with food and with your body and your mind and it's one that you you cannot win nothing you do it feels like nothing you do will ever allow you to win that battle but like I said um talk to a therapist talk to God um there there is help that can be found and healing that does exist 
but it takes time and it takes a lot of retraining your thought process and learning to recognize um, and honor hunger cues, which is something that you suppressed for so long when you're experiencing an eating disorder because you don't, every eating disorder manifests itself differently in different people. Um, but the mental battle is still there, regardless of the type of eating disorder you have, regardless of your weight, regardless of the type of diet you are or aren't following, um, there is a mental struggle. And culturally, we've certainly created an expectation that's probably harder on women than men. That the, we don't ever say the natural, the ideal is celebrated. Our media does that, our print media, our visual media. And I think our church culture sometimes do that. We, we, we reward people that have an ideal body, quote-unquote, and that sends a message to those that aren't getting those and so I think we've just got to create a culture where everybody feels at peace in their own skin the way they are and where they are, even if they have work to do. Um, but I just admire you being so vulnerable on your mission, which is sharing how much you gain and what you had to do with your clothes and how difficult it must have been for you. Um, but let me ask a question. Do you think the skills you learn from your sexual assault and overcoming that gave you skills to to solve your eating disorder? I think um, that trifecta, like I talked about earlier, can be applied to a number of different life experiences. Um, much like the sexual assault, there weren't very many people who knew about my eating disorder. Um, I talked about it with some of my companions pretty vaguely. Um, and I might have mentioned it to my mission president, but my mom knew. My mom was a big support. And God knew what I was going through. God knew that I was making sacrifices in order to serve him. And he knew what kind of toll that was taking on my mind and on my body. Um, and again, getting therapy beforehand and being told, to learn to intuitive eat and listen to your body. Even though I didn't end up reading those books that I brought on my mission, I ended up learning the same principles through intermittent fasting. And I would have never even considered doing that had I not gone to therapy. And so I think, yes, from my sexual assault, I learned the importance of therapy. I learned the importance of being vulnerable and honest with people to allow them to give you support and love through your times of trial. And I definitely learned that there was a purpose and a plan, right? God knew that I'd be going on my mission having just been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, God was very aware of that and aware of the implications that that would have on me and on the work that I did for him. But what I learned through all of these experiences is that God's plan is so much greater than ours. God can see beginning to end, and he knows exactly what we need. Still to this day, I say that despite how hard my mission was, if I had only gone on my mission 
in order to overcome my eating disorder, it would have been worth it for me. God knew that I'd overcome it on my mission. God knew that um, serving a mission would motivate me to heal from sexual assault. God knew that I needed to serve my mission years after I initially was planning to serve, that there were people that I needed to meet at that time. And so for those of you who didn't get to serve their mission at the time that they wanted to, or maybe even at all, know that God's hand is in that. And that while it might not make sense to you to trust his will, to trust that he is very aware of you and aware of what you're going through and that um, his plan is greater than ours will ever be. You're going to marry a guy someday um, in the temple. Um, will you tell him about your sexual assault and your eating disorder? I will. And why, if, if yes? Mm -hmm. I will. Um, my sexual assault and my eating disorder has shaped me into the person that I am today. I would not have the testimony that I have were it not for those experiences. I would not have the empathy and the love for others that I have were it not for those experiences. They changed my life forever. And to be honest, there's no guarantee that at some point in the future, I won't struggle with them again. I believe being honest and vulnerable particularly with our significant others is important because it provides them an opportunity to understand and love us in a way that they don't know how to, if they don't know about something in the first place. And so my hope is that I find somebody who loves and accepts me despite these experiences um, and honors the growth that has come as a result of these experiences and someone who can recognize who I've become as a result of them. I love that answer. And maybe we'll do a podcast one day with you and your husband and he will talk about these parts of you and he won't you, the only thing I didn't disagree I disagreed with was the word of despite just to tease you a little bit because I think he'll look at it and he won't use that word he will know those are very painful experiences they're outside of your control so that's true about that word but he won't want to press a button and erase them or look at you negatively just like you said and it will be part of the, the beauty that he sees in you. And he'll recognize, and this is me talking to listeners that are wondering, could anybody love me? Um, I think just what Michelle said is true. And people love us in our vulnerability and our honesty and our transparency. And that's often what brings a couple together. And often the other person has stuff about them. They may use the despite word, no one's going to love me. They might love me, to, but... I think they often are able to heal each other and see the good and the beauty. So I may be misspeaking a little bit, teasing you too much about that word, because it's a correct word there. But I just, 
I think sometimes we grow up and we want this perfect checklist world as we present ourselves to our potential spouse. And I don't think that's the way we fall in love and find somebody is this perfect exterior with no difficult life experiences. I think that's often how people fall in love and connect. And then I think spouses get, and I would guess your husband gets that you will be able to help your kids and him because of these life experiences in ways that he will never be able to. And he will just know that this experience makes you not a diminished mom or not a mom with all, all the check boxes or wife, but somebody that is just on a really special mission to be able to help other people, including family members. Are you okay with all that? Yeah. Yes. So I've certainly tried to understand better about that and, um, and obviously, what you said about yourself, there was no shame. The thing when you talked about sharing this with your future husband, there was no shame in that. Um, and that's where I love where you are. And this is kind of the de-shaming podcast sometimes. <laughs> because you've de-shamed eating disorder. And you've mm-hmm. de-shamed sexual assault, which is trauma. And not de-shamed in the sense it's not hard and it's not difficult to overcome, but it's just what happens. And I think some of society and some of Satan's greatest tools create shame. And then you isolate your Satan's greatest tool, I think, is to isolate us from God. The front, he wants to isolate us from your trifecta, <laughs> which I can't spell. And that's one of his goals because that's the path to healing. Mm-hmm. So if he says you're beyond help or... Or even if you say you can solve this all on your own, back Mm -hmm. to the Steve Young thing I shared earlier, we work out our own salvation. So I'm not going to lean to the trifecta. I'm going to solve this all on my own because that's the way we do it in the church. We're really strong. We're kind of Puritan. We solve everything on our own. But that's to me, that's not how the road to healing and the road to moving forward. So that's what I love what you're sharing. Um, And I love this thought, I still come back to it, that there's not a correlation between the degree of sexual assault and the amount of trauma. And so I sort of have thought that's linear, and I don't want to go through the ranges of sexual assault and sort of name them what I think they might be. Because that's even about Michelle's sexual assault, I've trained my mind not to wonder what exactly happened. That's not my job to go there, and it's not my job to meet her needs by asking exactly what happened. Now, she may open up to a trusted friend or a therapist, and that may at times be part of her journey to heal, but to me, that's not my job to sort of wonder what happened. And I recognize, and so I'm trying to program my brain, but that's more to satisfy my curiosity than to minister to Michelle and lift her burden. And so I'm trying to do better at that, but I do recognize my job is to honor her degree of trauma and not try to correlate it with the range of things that could happen under the umbrella of sexual assault and recognize that there is not a direct correlation between a category two on a 10 to sexual on the sexual assault and a nine level of trauma. You shouldn't fill two level of trauma with, I mean, I think I'm over making my point listeners, but that's something that I've learned is just to honor trauma and not have to someone sort of explain to me the degree of trauma by justifying the experience and me sort of saying, well, I'm not going to really honor your trauma until I understand 
the degree of whatever happened to happen, if it meets some threshold in my mind, then okay, I'm honoring your trauma. That's just, my job is to honor it just because it's there in the other person. And then I don't add to their burden by sort of re-traumatizing them by making them justify their pain or their trauma. Any thoughts on my <laughs> on any of that? Yeah, I, I love that, and I completely agree. Um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I've struggled a lot with the amount of trauma I experienced in comparison to the event itself. And I've often wondered if I'm being dramatic or if what happened wasn't even sexual assault at all. These are, these are still questions. I still experience shame four years later for the trauma that I experienced because I make that comparison. Um, I judge myself for, yeah, kind of what happened versus how much trauma I experienced. But I think honoring people's trauma experience is so important. And that's, that's not verbiage that I've ever heard before, but I really like that. Um, and I agree that, that the experience is far less important than how the experience made somebody feel. And I think that's more what people should focus on is, um, the, the trauma that someone experienced and how that's affecting their life. Great. Any more thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners we haven't gotten to, Michelle? There's an analogy that I heard while I was serving in New Zealand. Um, we were in Relief Society, and we were talking about mental health and chairs. Um, this is kind of an interesting analogy, but... Think about a chair with um, a broken leg. Maybe it's just kind of cracked. So every time you sit on the chair, it's kind of uncomfortable. And there's a lot of stress put on that leg. But you continue to experience the discomfort. Um, when I was healing, before I started healing from my sexual assault, um, I was like that chair with a broken leg. But the only way to fix that broken leg is to break it completely. And breaking it completely is going to be painful. It's going to be a painful experience, and sometimes that doesn't make sense. But you have to give in to the, the stress. You have to give in to the discomfort completely in order to heal. And that's what I experienced with with therapy and with my overall healing process is that while I was experiencing discomfort for many months, I didn't break completely until I started therapy. That's when all of the walls really came down. That's when I finally hit rock bottom, but it wasn't until I broke completely that I began to heal completely. And so that's just one analogy that I really loved and really helped to illustrate the importance of, of giving in completely to the discomfort in order to find true and complete healing. Love that. Um, I read this quote frequently on the podcast. It's from the Dutch Catholic priest, Henry Norwin. 
And he writes, and minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. And so I look at these two deserts that you've walked, a survivor of being a sexual assault, of an eating disorder, and those are really brutal, brutal deserts that you've felt. And... Uh, but then I look at your ability to heal and help others and even sister deserts that aren't exactly the same experience because you understand difficult these difficult deserts. You have tools to help other people. So I wouldn't wish an eating disorder on any of our listeners, just like Michelle obviously wouldn't, or to become a victim of sexual assault. Um, I wouldn't wish any of that on anybody, but I do recognize in everybody's situations, we've been put in deserts that are very difficult. But it often, as we work our way through those deserts, we're often then able to heal other people in our own vulnerabilities and our own journeys. And that's where I think the beauty of someone's, like Michelle's story, that bravely comes on and shares her podcast. So Michelle Kehoe, thank you for reaching out and bravely sharing the story. If there's friends and family listening or even therapists that have helped Michelle, thank you for the work you've done. And I love this trifecta um, visual. It's very powerful. It's very effective that I hope all of our listeners include, and I'm going to try to do more on that. And thank you, our listeners, for listening. This is Richard Osler signing up from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.